Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 199 with my guest, Joni G. This episode is sponsored by Cards Against Humanities, 10 Days or Whatever of Kwanzaa. If you like when this show is dark and inappropriate, you should definitely check out uh, the game Cards Against Humanity. You give Cards Against Humanity 15 bucks and they'll send you 10 mystery gifts for the 10 days or whatever of Kwanzaa. Space is limited to the first 250,000 people who sign up at HolidayBullshit.com. Uh, go look at the reviews of uh, Cards Against Humanity on Amazon, and I, I think that'll tell you a lot about uh, how funny people find it. Anyway, uh, I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive... <laughs> compulsive. That's, that's something you can't stop doing, but it involves pus compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental <laughs> Professional. Slow the fuck down, Paul. This show, I'm so afraid that the introduction, which I'm making longer now, which is just contributing to my fear of <laughs> you guys going, oh Jesus, this fucking intro again. I'm done with this podcast. The show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go check it out. Join the forum. Uh, take a survey. Read surveys. See what other people have uh, filled out, sharing their deepest, darkest struggles, secrets, shames, fantasies. Um Support the show, read a blog, lots of really good guest blogs. Um, let's get to some... Oh, and I also want to give some love to uh, the vets uh, out there. Uh, we had Veterans Day this week in uh, in the States and in, in Canada. And, um, you know, I was reminded, and I'm 
not getting this quote exact, but uh, Carl Marlantes, who is a terrific author, and he has a book called What It's Like to Go to War. And one of the things that he essentially says in essence is that um, when our vets return home, uh, they don't really want high fives. What they want is recognition and compassion for the pain that has been left in their soul for doing a job and a duty that is uh, difficult and complicated. And uh, so I'd like to say to any vets out there, um, thank you for your service. And um, I, I'm sorry that you, um, if you're struggling with the, um, all the complex aftermath, emotional aftermaths, um, and sending you some love. Uh, let's get to a couple of surveys. This is from, and thank God, Carl, Carl Marlantes uh, said it more eloquently than I just did. Um, this is from The Struggle in a Sentence. This is filled out by um, a woman who calls herself Missing My Stargazer. And uh, about her type 1 diabetes, she writes, Oh, fuck, my insulin pump isn't working. I have just a few hours before I start to get nauseous. Time to panic, then call my doctor, then sit on the floor and cry because I feel so defeated. Uh, she's also a widow um, at 29 years old. And she writes um, a snapshot from her life. I sit on the couch in front of the coffee table, staring blankly into space. There's a bottle of tequila and a packed bong sitting in front of me, but I don't have the energy to avail myself of either. I wish I'd been in the passenger seat that night. Then I'd be dead too, and this would all be so much simpler. Instead, I'm the 20-something with the dead husband living in her brother's basement. I want off this ride so badly sometimes. Some days, I just want the diabetes to hurry up and kill me. I'm so sorry that you're uh, that you're in pain, and I'm not going to try to say anything trite to make it better. Um, this is a snapshot from a teenager. She calls herself "Pain is Eternal," and she writes, uh, "The moment when you cut yourself at work and then vomit in the garbage can and smile like nothing happened when the janitor comes in." Uh, this is from uh, a woman who calls a uh, 90% female uh, surveys tonight. Fellas, let's go. Step it up. This was from, uh, she calls herself unidentified uh, feline and uh, about her depression. She writes, like my struggles aren't big enough to be depression, but I'm running uphill while everyone else runs down. Boy, do I relate to that. About her bulimia, it's 2 a.m. with a full stomach. It's so easy to make a pact to change tomorrow. Um, snapshot from her life. I knew my flatmate had family staying in our apartment for one weekend, and knowing I wouldn't be able to get through a whole weekend without binging and purging, I booked a hotel room near where I lived, went there, binged, threw up, tidied up, and left early. I could have at least stayed the night and enjoyed the room I paid for. I've done so many things because of my illness, and all of them seem like storylines I watched in a film, not parts of my life. That is profound. Thank you for sharing that. I um, wanted to throw a happy moment in here because uh, uh, kind of a super heavy batch of uh, struggle in a sentence. And uh, Hank writes, My eight-year-old daughter takes karate at the same studio I do. I help teach the classes she takes. After one class a few weeks ago, she told me that she was lucky because karate is something we do together. Ah, oh, I love that. Um, I wanted to read this one. Uh this is this is filled out by uh, 
a woman who calls herself uh, Scarlet Letter, and uh, she's bisexual, and she writes, I would love... Oh, oh, this is from the Shame and Secret survey. This is just an excerpt from it, and she writes, uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone? She writes, I would love to be, be stable and comfortable enough to tell everyone my sexuality. My husband knows. Uh, another to tell my mom I feel she has helped him uh, mess my mind up due to the dysfunction of the family and to tell the religion I was part of to fuck itself for wanting me to choose between supporting LGBT community or attending church. And um, somebody had had posted on a Facebook thing. I had written something. Um, I don't know if you knew, but there was a decision in Cincinnati um, where this circuit court judge or maybe it was an appellate judge, upheld the ban on gay marriage, which just... There are a few things that make me just feel rage. And when I I read that, I felt obliged to um, write something on Facebook and on the Mental Illness Happy Hour page. And this guy wrote, I thought this page was about mental illness. And it just made me so fucking angry that... And and I wrote back and basically said, if you think, first of all, this show is not just about mental illness. It's about the things that create the mental stresses and challenges and emotional challenges in our lives. And if you think that a society that stigmatizes people for how they're born doesn't deserve to be talked about in in the mental illness conversation. Uh, he also, I, I went to his, I blocked him as fast as I possibly could. And his photo on his homepage is the president who was the biggest enemy of care for the mentally ill in the last 50 years. I won't say who it is, but those of you who, and probably the biggest enemy of, um, of the LGBT community. And, um, it's, it's just, I'm, I'm feeling that fucking anger come up, uh, again right now at, um, how backwards so many people are and they just use religion to, excuse their intolerance and, um, when people use the word values, you know, well, those are the values I have. I just want to say, well, could you maybe open yourself up to the values of independence, individuality, diversity, and equality? This is, um, oh, I just love this one. This was from um, a transgender uh, listener who writes, uh, who calls himself uh, creme fresh to death. And uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Sometimes I wish I could hand out a care sheet for myself, like for plants. Don't leave in a crowd too long. Excessive crying is normal. Cuddles are welcome. Oh, God, I wish I didn't need to take meds. Flat out fucking auditory hallucinations. I would literally wake up running from my bed. I'm afraid that I'll pass my anger on to my son. I thought the gunman was my father. Afraid of not being able to make a living. Um, that's probably going to break his heart if he hears it, but that's that's the truth. They committed him to Bellevue. There was this fear that if I feel this pain, I wish someone could see what was going on and just help me, that it will kill me and I will die and I will drown. You can't think your way out of a thinking problem. And I cried the way that a baby cries. 
cried like an animal. It makes me so mad at myself that I do that. The burden of perfectionism. And that's when I got into therapy. Let's talk about that. So I was like, fuck it, I'm alive. I don't give a shit about anything. You are a shining example of what is best about human beings. I'm worried that the uh, Russian militia is coming over the hill. I know that, uh, but uh, Alice, how you feeling? I'm pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> like I'm here with my friend Joni, who I've known for, what, probably five, six, seven years, maybe? And uh, I know her uh, as a sober person. You've been sober a while, uh, but you've been through a lot of shit lately, and uh, you're just recovering from from breast cancer, Mm -hmm. and uh, your head is completely bald. Yes, You have no eyebrows, and you have the biggest smile on your face. (laughs) You know, that's... I always knew that I wanted to record you, but in the last six months, walk watching you walk walk with such dignity through mm. what you're going through, and to be of such help to other people, um, is just so inspiring. And I just love talking to you, and I love your story, and. Um, I love how open and honest you are about everything in your life. You you just turned 60, is that correct? That's right. Um, you know, they can't see me, so they might think I'm okay. And you're 20. Um, where would be a good place to start with your story? I've heard your story so many, so many times. Um, it, there's so many things that I want to hear you share with the listener. Um Talk about your childhood. For all intents and purposes, I had the ideal family. I mean, uh, even our house was decorated red, white, and blue. Who knew? But behind those closed doors, there was a lot of shit going on. And, um, you know, I don't think we were that different from everybody else. I grew up, I started out middle America, maybe just a little below middle America. My father was in the car business, and um, it was all about getting ahead. You know, nice Jewish family. Get it, let's get ahead. Let's get better zip codes going on here, and uh, let's pay some more property tax. And so off we went, and we went to Westwood, Beverly Hills. You know, and uh, struck the black gold, and um, and it just went on from there. You know, I mean, we did everything we were supposed to do as a fam, as an upper middle class family. You know, my mom got strung out. My father got uptight. My brother, you know, just recruited into his own room and into his sports. And I did what every other kid was doing. I got into drugs. Yeah, you started taking speed pretty early on because you, yeah. you realized you, you didn't have to worry about your weight if you were taking speed, My right? My weight and, and the fact that, you know, I had that I had that disease, ADD, you know. But we didn't know it then. You know, we called it dumb. We called it stupid. We called it slow. I, I called it shame, and um, I didn't want you to know that I didn't get it. And uh, so there I was, a little bit too short and a little bit too wide, and um, just I just didn't fit in. You know, my mother would put me in front of the mirror, and she'd wrap me up in a towel, and she'd look at me and she'd say, don't you worry, we're going to get it all fixed. And I'd look at her and say, what? What, what are we going to get fixed? Everything. We're just, don't you worry. Like I said, we were the typical nice Jewish family that, you know, don't you worry, you little, you little, what we're eventually going to call you a Jewish American princess. We will get it all fixed. You know, that little lump in your nose and, and all those did freckles. You, did and, you feel that way about yourself? 
Yeah, I guess I did. Um, Eventually? Yeah, you know, from, from like three years old, I knew that there was going to be somebody named Twiggy and she was going to set the bar and, uh, and my life was going to be toast unless I looked a little bit better. So I compensated in so many ways. I compensated with music. I became a singer. I compensated with dancing. I became an outstanding dancer. And, you know, while my mother was teaching me these things, in the mirror, you know, uh, after our bath, my father was vetoing it. No, I don't want you to do that. No, your legs are too big. They look like mine. And, um, you know, it's these little things that parents say that they don't realize this stuff sticks with you. It does. I mean, I'm, I'm 60 years old today and I can see him saying this stuff to me. I can't even remember any compliments, but I can remember those things. Like they were yesterday. It seems like it was pretty rare, the parent that was more praising than critical yeah, back then. It really did. Like, like children should be seen and not heard. Yeah, that's and how they if, were raised. If we're having a dinner party, you are not around. Yeah. And, um, well, who the fuck wanted yeah. to be around? Remember how loud they were? Oh, yeah, but I remember the food. I remember oh. the smells. I really enjoyed that smell of perfume and vodka. Yes. Oh, and the cigarettes. Yes, I and loved then, it. And then they get super drunk, and then they put on a Mitch Miller sing along with Mitch, and right. you'd be upstairs or, trying or, to sleep. Or the like, Ray Conniff singers, or Frank Sinatra. And and I really loved the sounds in those days, you know, because I didn't understand. I just loved the sounds of the glasses, mm-hmm. you know, and and the ice on the rocks, and the laughter, and the laughter, and you know, now that I'm an adult, I see. These people were just as fucked up as I became, but... Uh, they seemed so old. They did, didn't they? So old. They, they were, were old. probably in their <laughs> 30s, and they seemed like they were 100. But they died, too, you know? I mean... Are both your folks gone? Yeah. I'm really, you know, I have to say, because I take care of an older woman now, and she's 86, and um, she's miserable. I'm really blessed that my parents left while I was still a kid. I was like in my late thirties, but I was still their kid. I didn't have to ever have to change their diapers or yeah. or walk them anywhere. Or... I have a friend who's changing his dad's diaper these days, yeah. and he's such a great guy. How he's just showing up for his dad, and I and I look at that situation, and I feel. Um, of course, I have to make it about me. So my first <laughs> thought is, I don't know if I could do that. I know, I know. And then I feel terrible. I don't have children because of the selfishness. It's a selfless, thankless job taking care of these people. I think I and could change a kid's diaper. I don't think I could change an adult's diaper. I, I, I know. I suppose if I had to, I could do it, but... Well, things are a little a bit more complicated. And a, and a parent's diaper that just seems so heavy emotionally. <laughs> yeah. You know? But then, you know, it, it's, it goes full circle. They don't... They come back to the infant yeah. thing. It's really humbling i'm really grateful that i can be of service to this woman but uh, i can only go so far i have friends that go way further than i do yeah yeah i'm i'm you know i'm still there so let's get let's get back to your story so you're a kid who's told that uh she's got legs like tree trunks and yeah. she's never going to be a dap ballerina you know, I, well no that wasn't true yeah i mean he didn't want me to, i was really good and he knew it 
And he discouraged it and discouraged it because I got more and more obsessed. I mean, we talk about Mitch Miller, but, you know, I was right there watching um, stuff like Ed Sullivan and um, I forget what the show was, but they had these dancers. I, I, I'm, I was just amazed and, and so enthralled with showbiz and fame. And, you know, I mean, I must have seen West Side Story. That's a pretty magical uh, movie when when we were kids. It, Everything I, was magic when we were kids. It's it's because there were so few choices. It's something had to be magical. Most and of parent, it was terrible. And the parent but, figure, you know, they they just rained on our parade twenty four seven. Yeah. You know, no, 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 and you can't, you can't, you can't, and the, don't ever, don't ever. You know, I think for for their generation, the biggest sin you could commit was to be fully yourself. And I think for them, their fear was dreams might be grandiosity or, waiting in the bushes. Well, and, it was. Uh, you know, I do believe that I vicari- that my father vicariously lived through me when I became a drug dealer. You know, I yeah. think he loved it. I really do. And I, and I think they want to uh, keep you from experiencing pain. Right. And you know, now that I look back, it was all done out of love. There was never any malice in mind. And you know, um, did you, I don't know if you ever had anybody die when you were a kid, but they didn't want to even tell you about that. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, they went on a vacation. Really, <laughs> my parents never did that. Yeah, that's hilarious. You know. I mean, nothing... You're like, well, then why are they going on their vacation in a coffin? Because that seems really confining. You you know, he hasn't been around for a while. Something you said? (laughs) You know, it's amazing now that I think of it, how the parent trying to protect the child from pain actually just winds up making the child feel pain. More painful, yeah. Because don't you love me? It's got to be so hard, though, to let your child wander out in the world knowing that they are going to feel rejection, but... I guess you got to remember it's going to help them grow. Well, we know that. I'm so grateful for our generation, I got to tell you. I really am. I think we paved the road for a lot of people. I think we definitely emotionally opened yeah. up a lot of the, you know, the baby boomers kind of yeah. uh, didn't d- always do kids it gracefully. Kids are included today. Yeah. And kids kids are to- well, listen, kids are they they're born with these incredible minds that are allowed to come out. You know, we might have invented something really cool and high-tech if we were only allowed to come out of our room, you know? <laughs> you know? I you know, know, George Carlin went to, like, one of the first, I don't know if it was called a Montessori school, but um, where he was just really allowed to embrace his artistic side, and he said it made a huge impact on him. I'm reading a great book right now called um, Innovators, and it's about every digital innovation that's happened in the 20th and 21st century and the guys that created google um one of the guys was went to a school like that where he was he said learning wasn't they didn't tell you what to learn you just pursued whatever you were interested in wow. and by the time this guy got to stanford to get his phd he took all of his tests like the first week he was there and passed them all so for two years he just got to play and that's how he came up with the idea for Google, he was actually just wanted to do a, a, a learn how to mine data on the internet, and it suddenly hit him one day. Oh my God, this could be a great way. Wow, this could make a great search engine. But the fact that he was allowed to explore that, that it wasn't forced on him, and he thinks the way that we educate kids should be completely um, different. I don't know. I don't have kids, so I I can't weigh in on 
that necessarily. I watch them at school all the time, you yeah. know, because I go to college, and uh, they're amazing. Yeah. They're just amazing. I, I, I couldn't go to school without them. And you you're know. getting uh, your, what, what, what is it called? My degree in MFT. I want to be marriage family therapist. Yes. Um, but you were, and, and you have your uh, drug, drug counseling uh, Right, degree. I'm a certified drug and alcohol counselor now yeah. because I'm a certified drug yeah. and alcoholic. You're, yeah. you're a drug pig. <laughs> yeah. You are a fucking drug pig. Yeah, I had pig. my PhD way before I let's ever opened a book. Let's get into the, the <laughs> drug dealing years. Oh, God, those were when the did days. It, when did it escalate? <laughs> By the uh, way, Joni, Joni is was Orange is the New Black way yeah. before Orange was the New Black. Yeah, you've done some true. time. Yeah, you've made some shit out of tampons. Yeah, I've I've definitely uh, or or maxi pads. <clears throat> that's what they. Well, yeah, make no, it. we we use we use uh, Kotex for you slippers. Know, it it and... makes it makes sponges look like like tissue. Yeah, that's what we clean up with, and you know, mascara is coffee and. Um, and what? Oh, coffee mascara, is mascara. Yeah. <laughs> I got you. I thought you meant you drank yeah. mascara. I was like, no, wow, that's good. No. And if you want to sew something, then you shred a sheet so you can have some threads. Yeah. I mean, all the, I learned things that I'm like, really? They think they're innovative on the outside? I don't think so. Oh, no, most nothing. creative, most inventive population I've ever. And then there's when you, me. When you see what they make a shank out of. Uh, I knew a guy oh, one God. time who... Uh, told me that he made shanks um, out of chicken thigh bones. He said, oh, sure. yeah, you take it and then you rub it down on the cement right. and then you get a... Um, if you surgical, can get a chicken. If you can get chicken. <laughs> and you get a surgical glove and you wrap it around that and that makes the handle so you can, so you can grab it. We used it. to do other things with surgical gloves. What does that mean? Well, girls get really horny in there. And oh. <laughs> soap in a surgical glove, and oh. you can go crazy. I guess so. <laughs> I mean, you talk about Michelangelo. <laughs> <laughs> really, there's some carvings that go on that you, it, it's just the most amazing place. And, oh, and so you would you would carve well, the, the soap into but, a phal- into a phallic shape? Well, y- yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But if you get caught, sorry about your why bad the, luck. Why? Why would you? punish somebody for doing that they're in fucking jail they, they they punish you for thinking they punish you for i'm telling you 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 can't you learn how just just look straight just don't uh, don't stick out don't no i've never been so quiet for so long it must be so triggering to the person who is a child had a super authoritarian parent who beat them down for attracting any kind of attention. I can't imagine how triggering that must be. Uh, it, uh, you know, like, well, what happened for me when, when my father did that is... Would he, be, it, he beat you or just... No, he uh, never touched... Yeah. No, my father was, you know, he was a good guy, to tell you the truth. I loved him dearly. He was the only guy on the planet I wanted to please. But I just couldn't do that because uh, nothing I was ever going to do was going to be good enough. And meanwhile, this is all coming from love. Who knew, you know? And for me, what it happened was I had such a fear of uh, people, you know, performing in front of people. Because he, I never knew, you know, it was at his funeral that I was told that apparently to hear me sing, to watch me dance was 
his love of his life. And he never told you? Never told me. What did that feel like when you heard that? I, j I was angry. Like, why the fuck didn't you tell me that? My life would have been different. But I don't blame him today, you know, um, any of that. I don't blame her for any of that. These people did the best they could, and it was a thankless job, and they worked hard. And I remember as he lay there dying, I, I took his hand, and I, and, I, and I told him, thank you. You, you know, it suddenly dawned on me, you did all of this for me. And now look, you know, you're going to be gone in a minute. And You said that to him? Yeah. You know, and uh, I held his hand and I said, I just want to thank you. Thank you so very much. You did an okay job. I'm going to be fine. And um, then, of course, my addiction took over and I had to go home because I had to get loaded, don't you know? And she's dad, I'll be back in the morning. And the morning never came. When I got home, the phone rang and um, it was the hospital telling me that he had died. So, you know, there was all that guilt for a long time, you know, like, because I left. Oh, you felt, like you, you felt like you should have been at the hospital instead well, of going yeah. to get loaded. 15 more minutes left before the miracle. One more time. One more time I left before the miracle. Just couldn't hang in there because that's how strong my addiction was at that point. I needed to go. But people go home when their parents in hospice. People don't well, you know, necessarily he, live he at the hospital. He was only in ICU for, for one day. I could have stayed. I could have stayed. I went home for all the wrong reasons. But I bet you if you hadn't gone home for that reason, if you'd just gone home because you're like, I need a home-cooked meal, you'd probably still yeah, be beating probably, yourself up. Yeah. You'd be like, why am I so, you know. Well, you know, we, we um, everything was complete at that point. You know, my father used to hold my hand and squeeze it three times. I love you, right? He never, he, he very rarely said that, but that's how he, he wasn't no really affectionate kind of guy. And he took my hand that, you know, I mean, I, I thought he was in a coma, but he took my hand after I said those things to him and he squeezed it three times. I mean, we were done. We were done. And so I guess after I left, he felt like I did say, you can give this to God. You can give this pain to God because you can't physically, humans aren't equipped for this kind of. So you believed in a God, even though you were in your oh, yeah. addiction at that point and you hadn't gotten sober. Oh, yeah. I've always believed in God. You know, my father used to tell me that God was a little guy that sat next to you and not to sit on God. And, um, <laughs> and so I try not to sit on God. What was the purpose of that? Because kids ask, is there God? And, and you know, there we were, the holiday Jews, you know. Uh, we, we, you know, really? I mean, like on Christmas, we had a silver tree with blue bulbs. But we had Christmas, you know, and um, only because my mother was more orthodox than my father did we even light the menorah, you know, and my father would be rolling his eyes the whole time. My, my, I would get a quarter, my brother would get 50 cents, and we were supposed to be really happy about that. So it was know? more, it was more of, you were more cultural Jews, we were than, Jews. Than, than, you were, <laughs> than you were religious Jews. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think most people I know are, yeah. are that way. And most Catholics I know are more culturally Except Catholic. in my neighborhood. You never seen so many Hasidics walking around in your life. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. L.A. has a huge Hasidic population. The guys I play hockey with on uh, Sunday night, uh, a third of them are Hasidic Jews, big beards, and and they, they play wear hockey the, in the and they wear the thing uh, underneath While it, they're like playing? the shawl. Yeah, yeah, yeah yarmulke. Isn't that something? And yeah. it's 110 degrees. Uh, not on the ice. It's yeah. Not. 
Well, my yeah. my neighborhood walks around. Yes, and it, I, and, and, and in the valley, and, and they're yeah. wearing all black. My wife and I always just look at each other and just I know go how the I fuck? live right. You know, in Temple City, I mean, my yeah. God. And so it was Halloween last week, and I didn't know who, who are you just dressing as a Jew, or are you? <laughs> <laughs> and the only way I could figure it out was the kids were liking costume. But, they, you know, they're walking their kids around. ask them to turn the light switch on on a Friday night, and that's how oh, no, you no, find no, out. No, 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 no. We make sure all the lights are yeah. on. So... um <laughs> Let's back up a little bit and let's go to let's talk let's talk about teenage uh, Joni and you starting to separate yourself from well starting to get independent. What did when did you, you got to understand? Started- I grew up in the seventies, late sixties, seventies. Okay, LSD. Every you know we are gonna take it if it's round and it's solid. Let me put it in my mouth. See what happens. That sounds so dirty. But, yeah, right. And it was, but and because it, it came, you know, yeah. it was the sexual revolution and the drug uh, culture. So everything was fair game, and um, and I was curious about everything, and I tried everything, and of course, you know, once I discovered uh, methamphetamine, that was your thing. That ah, that and coke. Ah, right? yeah, love, pure. Unadulterated I love, when, love. I love when you talk about how much you loved cocaine. Yeah. Uh, no man has ever or will ever satisfy me like cocaine did. Oh, that's so going on <laughs> the opening montage of it's next, true, year's, Isn't that next sad? year's podcast. Isn't that so sad? It's such a great sound yeah. bite. Well, you know, no man ever made me feel as good. No man could make me feel as good as quickly as she could. No man could... Um, I, it, it was instantaneous. No man ever looked as good as she did, you know, and I definitely got into the cosmetics of cocaine. What does and, that mean? Well, certain, you know, I mean, because I was a drug dealer, I mean, I looked for certain traits and, and certain characteristics, and I knew what was more man-made as opposed to organic. Oh. I was very particular. Well, But I was very successful. Tell me what uh, looking, how can you tell bad cocaine or good cocaine just by well, looking color. at color. God, the, I haven't the, been asked that the, question. The whiter, the white, the, the, whiter, the, the more better. pure. Yeah. Right. And you don't want the yellow. You don't want it oily, or I didn't. You don't want it greasy or gasoline or... Well, that you, just you, sounds you, like common sense. <laughs> well, but some people... Hey, listen. I guess some people don't have anything to they compare it to. I don't know. You know, just not my thing. You know, I started using way before crack cocaine. So uh, I started cooking cocaine a long time before... Late 70s. Early 80s. Really, yeah, yeah. Late 70s, early, yeah, late 70s. With like ether and... Yeah, those were the days. That was the that was some dangerous and, shit, and though. And the smell and the taste and, uh, and then, of course, the origin. You know, cocaine used to come... People used to put their signature on cocaine. So if you got kilos that had certain names on them, you knew where it came from and you knew how good it was. And that that was when it was coming from Colombia. And then as as it got cheaper and started going through Mexico, oh God, it just went down. But you know, it was definitely is a that because it was getting stepped on as it went through Mexico. Uh, yeah, oh yeah. But it, the whole market changed. You know, what there wasn't as much violence. But uh, yeah, I used to do a lot of yeah. What more, did you ever deal with uh, who is it, Griselda? No, you know? never did. Maybe, you know, indirectly, yes, I'm sure I did. But, you know, it blows my mind. I shouldn't be sitting here 
alive to tell you about it. I was very, very lucky. I've had guns held to my head. I've um, definitely, I learned how to speak Spanish for the love of my drug, just so that, you know, I could, so that I didn't have to deal with anybody that wasn't right from the border. Have you held a kilo of cocaine? Are you really serious about that? Yeah. Isn't that a lot? Isn't that a lot? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've done some things that I don't think what's we the, should put on, on public what's the radio. Mo- what's the most cocaine you've... And, and this is going to be a brief... Uh, you sure hate, they can't I, see I, me? I, I hate and, and, I, and the statute of limitations is... I hate if I'm glorifying this. If you If you hadn't gotten out of this and become the person you are, I would not be talking about this in these glowing, in these glowing terms. But, um, that contrast brings me joy. And that's what my joy is about. Not the people who were hurt, whose lives were. Oh, yeah. We won't go there. Who were hurt by your drug dealing, including yours. But there's a fascination to me. Anything that that strikes me. It was just like you see in the movies. Um, you know, like I, I would have days where uh, I would meet my connection over a very fancy lunch. Pass, you know, we'd 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 have lunch. Most of my people did not use because they were business people, and we'd have lunch. And then we'd after lunch we'd go and pass twenty, thirty kilos of cocaine, and um, I'd drive home with hundreds of thousands of dollars, and they'd drive home or vice versa. And um, it was all done over lunch. And were you was, selling kilos or you were mm-hmm. buying kilos? You were selling kilos? Mm-hmm. I so, had to buy them to sell them, but yeah. yeah. Were you breaking them down into smaller units? Or? Sometimes, but I didn't like to do that. I like to sell the kilo just as is because it's very it's very clean. It's very fast. Here you go. Put $1,000 on each kilo and you're good to go. So you sell 25 kilos in a half an hour. You just made $25,000. Who's going to complain? What would you and, and and if I broke them down, see, I didn't like those people. I didn't like those those small time little low life drug addicts. <laughs> uh, <laughs> those the, those are the, the guys that'll get you busted. I love the arrogant freebaser. I'm sorry, but that's who I was. The that's arrogant exactly free who I was. Baser. And and it became, you know, from all those insecure years, suddenly I held the bag and don't fuck with me, you know. And I was in charge. I was in control. Were you and badass? I loved being in control. Yeah. Talk about that. I, I did. I it was that was one of my hardest things when I when I uh, finally got sober was I don't feel as needed and you know today uh, today that's why I love being of service so much because I am needed. That's why I like being a, an alcohol and drug counselor. I know what I'm talking about. I know how it feels. I do not forget. And the ego had to be smashed, but. I'm needed today, and I need to be needed, and um, and I was needed then, and it was a power thing. Man, it was a power thing, and each each year got, you know, as I got more and more into it, I didn't, listen, I'm a nice little girl from Westwood. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know the people I was involved with, and what I didn't like and what I've never liked is I'm, you know, I'm the type, if you want something done right, do it yourself kind of thing. And um, being that I was a drug addict, I was having to go to these people that were just as strung out as anybody. And if it's anything I can't stand, it's a connection that overdoes his own habit. And now he's out of dope. <laughs> really? You know? <laughs> that Really? I, you know, I just don't have room for that. I mean, I want what I want when I want it. So um, I went to my connection. I said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to help you out here. I'll hold this dash. 
I'll just, I got this. Because I loved dealing more than I loved using. I loved it, but, you know, the, the money was just as addictive. And the power was just as addictive. And I needed, I needed all of it in order to um, stay awake to do my job. But I never, I was never out of control. I was never the one that you would um, peg as a you drug addict. You know. wouldn't stay up for five days no and start way. hallucinating. No, that's yeah. not professional. No, we go to bed now. We eat now. You know, you were a conscientious freebaser. Oh man, yeah, and and I chose it over everything. My boyfriends, if you got out of control, you had to go. I don't like you as much as I like her. Sorry. And we would all live together. Describe the feeling and the thoughts that go through your mind and your body when you make a big score and you've got a kilo in your in your hand. Well, you know, I did stuff like. Like I went through borders, a lot of borders, international borders, you know. I would I would take drugs <clears throat> to other countries and things like that. And, what? And, I never yeah, knew that. Yeah, and now the whole world knows it, and they're probably yeah. knocking at my door. I don't do it anymore. I swear to God I don't. Um, you know, I was a rush junkie. And um, because I, I never envisioned getting caught, I didn't get caught. And so I would do these things so matter-of-factly. And what goes through, it's a rush. It's a rush. One more time. I you're, got, good, I, you're a good actor. Yeah. And I got away with it. I loved it. How would you sneak kilos across a border? What would you... There were various ways, but one way I went pregnant with her, you know. And it just blew my mind. There I am. I'm like... Well, did I've you got, ever see dogs? I mean, if you saw no, dogs, wouldn't you? this was in you... the good old days when, oh. when you could go into an airport and everybody just, you know, was so self-obsessed, who cared? And the borders, you know, I looked like a nice girl. I knew the costumes to wear. I knew the, how to act. I knew, how, would you, how would you act? What would be the... Just like any other tourist. Comfortable eye contact, don't look shifty, smile, make small talk. Yep. Yep. Would you ever sweat? I don't remember, but... You know, I mean, you these, are, these are 11-hour flights. Would you be high when you were doing it? No, because you couldn't. You, no way. I, I've got, you know, a kilo of cocaine strapped to me. I'm not going to. But, you know, I, you I will take a tell little, you. You want to take a little yeah, ju- yeah, juice, you, juice yeah, box straw exactly. and put and, it into your navel? And I remember <laughs> I did that in Europe once. And I went to Europe once. And uh, it was a long-ass flight. And, uh, you know, I had different stashes. We used to have these cans and all kinds of things as stashes and um and i got hassled at the border and you know i got hassled because i was carrying torches and you know this is not cool this is pre-terrorist day but you know they were looking at me like mm. why do you have torches because i smoke crack oh, oh free basin i <laughs> yeah. see and you know, I thought you meant like a chase the villager. They, they, they didn't even, yeah, but they didn't even. It was like pulling teeth to find a can of butane in some of these countries, and mm-hmm. you know, I mean, and I was very elitist. I had to smoke my cocaine with just the right this, just the right that, and I need a pipe, and I need a this, blah, blah, blah. you know, none of this homemade, no, you know, bathtub I've, type. I've no, I've always felt like part of the high is the ritual. Of it the, is. And, it was, and the. The, the purity of it. The, I had to be in the right homes, in the right... I had to have the right everything. One of my favorite things to do was to get loaded in a really nice place. 
mm-hmm. you know. So, like, I had some really great customers, I got to tell you. And um, and they had some very fancy homes. And I used to love to sit back, not be paranoid, and cook up a, a batch of, yeah, those were the days. Those were the days. So when I, when I talked about my story, you know, it's really hard for me to come up with these hardcore, oh, God, it was so horrible, and oh God, mm-hmm. my life was, you know, because I went out of my way so that it wouldn't be horrible. I had decided that I was going to die an addict, and that was going to be okay with me because it, I, was a, I was a successful addict. So what changed? Why did you get sober? What? Uh, let me think. Oh, yeah. Handcuffs? <laughs> um, I knew that, uh, you know, my family had died, and I have a brother, and he was the one person I didn't want to get the phone call, your sister OD'd. You know, that would have really, not that he loves me so much, but it really, really crushed him. It really, so that was the one thing I didn't want, and I was curious as to how the other side lived. How do you guys... How do you go skiing for the weekend? How does that happen? Don't you have to take anything with you besides your clothes? Because I did. I mean, I, you know, I, if I went to the frickin' valley, you know, got to get it together. To You know, got to take this much dope. And, and I never traveled without drugs. And it, so it was costly. And you always, you know, there was always a catch. You know, if I'm going to another country, I have to have a round-trip ticket and, and because it's they won't let me in, and then they'll have some... It was just all... It was exhausting. I was getting exhausted. I really was getting exhausted. I'd been doing it for 30, 35 years. Wow. Yeah. Did you fuck up your your nose or because you were smoking so no, much? No, I stopped... I, I, You know, I'm a singer, so I, I, I had snorted so much I couldn't sing anymore, hence why I started smoking the stuff. And um, eventually I burned my vocal cords. Which, you know, is something I live with today. It's Music is one of my greatest loves, you know, and a lot of my clientele was in the music business. So I got to live out my uh, yayas that way. You know, I would sing backup or something in the studio. But my dreams of being an artist were, you know, so... Literally I, up in smoke. Literally. Yeah, Literally. But that's, you know, something I deal with on a day. I sing for myself today, and that's about it, you know? And it's all right. I've come to so much acceptance about who and what I am and what I've done, and I'm not mad. I had fun. Who was your your singing idol growing up? Well, of course, Barbara Streis. Yeah. We love her. And uh, Joni Mitchell. Yeah. God, does anybody ever mention her name anymore? Her her voice is... uh, unmistakable it's the best it's it's so pure and a little off key i love it yeah and i don't um, have a good enough ear to notice that yeah Uh, there were a lot of them but but streisand yeah i was you know i there was that was another thing there i was in the closet with my music you know i'm 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 singing barbara streisand and and broadway show tunes and everybody else is listening to cream and the doors and i couldn't tell you that i liked Show tunes. Are you sure you're not a gay man? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because it was, you know, I was just in, I was just hiding from everything. And then when I became in control, too bad about if you don't like what you see because I'm holding the bag and you want me. You better be nice to me. Mm. You know? You know, and I never questioned any of this. I thought for sure 
since I was so up there, uh, as far as my business went, I thought for sure I knew everything. Were you ever aware of somebody dying using your product? Yeah. Talk about that if you can. That's a hard one. Um, you know, a couple of people, I would get word OD'd and I would go out of my way. Was I the last one to sell them dope? And from what I'm told, no. But it seems to me, you know, geez, I saw them an hour before. Yeah, but you, or I didn't have any dope, at the, which was very rare. And through the grace of God, because, um, and one time somebody tried to uh, get me for, for uh, one of the family members, tried to get me for being the one. But as far as I know, indirectly, I guess I am responsible for that, you know. You know, I'm, I'm so blessed to be sober today. I'm so blessed to have a life as, as good as I do today. And I think it's because I've always known that God had a plan for me, that um, God's will for me was not to, not to hurt, not to be hurt necessarily. But, you know, I mean, it's not like God has let me... Or in my opinion, it's not like my God has let me slide on all this stuff. I definitely get to learn my lessons, and I. Um, but you know, if, if I if I wasn't in acceptance of you get what you, so I I don't think I could have lived through some of the stuff. You know, prison was not easy, but I deserved it. I deserved it. I needed it more so than anybody talk I've about, ever met. Talk about what you what your experience was like and what you learned there and. Did you well, feel like you began to change in prison? That's a good question because... Um, well, first, let's. how did you wind up going to prison? Well, what ended I, up I happening... I know it because yeah, I've heard it before, but I went to listen. What ended up happening was, I, like I said, I was getting exhausted. And I kept trying to uh, stop. I really did. I, I, I knew I had to stop, but I knew I loved it. So right there, you know, it's really hard to stop something you really like. And the fear was tremendous. How am I going to get up in the morning? How am I going to... I, I won't get up in the morning. That's just all there is to it. I will never get up again. And um, Did you have enough money to retire from drug dealing and, and support yourself, or would you have had to go get another job? Which, I guess was, I had enough money, yeah. Was, was drug dealing your only source of income at that point? Yeah, I, I had other uh, fronts that I would... Okay. Do and my family died and it left me money, okay. but that uh, that all went. You know, my lifestyle was so expensive that I I didn't know that you could live on pretty much nothing like I do today. You know, I didn't know. I used to think to myself, "How do people do it?" God, I mean, my how overhead. Do they, how do they self park? How do what is, yeah? How do they? I really serious. How do they pay rent? Do they bring their their Spiky club with them? Uh, how did they? I guess they had credit cards. I don't know. But um, my my overhead was like twenty five, thirty thousand dollars a month. You know, at oh least. My God. And this was in the eighties and nineties. This was nineties, uh, eighties. Yeah. yeah. Jesus. But you know, I had to. Uh, that included buying my stash. Mm. And um, but my habit would never make a dent in um, my money. I would always replace my money, but. Uh, so I couldn't imagine how how I hated to work for a living. Don't ask me to be at a job. I'll show up between nine and five. <laughs> I loved my work. But, um, but I knew something was going to have to change because I was getting older. 
You can't do that. I, I, I envisioned myself sitting on a bus bench at 75 years old, and I just, it was ugly. So I, I, you know, I guess God did for me what I couldn't do for myself. And I was so exhausted that I started to fall asleep while driving a lot. And um, I usually had a driver. But uh, finally, one day uh, after doing a drug deal, I was uh, in front of the police department in Santa Monica, and it was a green light, and I was out like a light. And the cops were in behind me. They were going home, and they banged on my window. And I was just, you know, look, great, pull over. I need to go to sleep. It didn't bother me to get arrested. It just didn't bother me to get arrested because I knew I had enough money to bail out, and, you know, I'll get to it. But in the interim, I can't even drive home. I need to go to bed. Let's get in the back of the car and just take me to where you're going to take me. I mean, my mugshot, I think the good judge felt so sorry for me when he saw the mugshot. I was like, <laughs> you know. And um, so that started happening, and that happened that night, and it took me at least three days to wake up to but bail out. They, but they didn't find drugs on you. Oh, yeah. They found uh, they found giant baggies full of residue, full oh. of residue. And they found a lot of money, and they found um, paraphernalia. And was that enough to, for a long sentence? Well, the combination uh, turns into intent to sell. Yeah, that's enough. Intent will get you... Uh, intent will get you 10 and um and so but i didn't care you know whatever just because um listen i was the teflon kid so what are you gonna do what are you gonna do and uh give me life and i don't think so so i thought you know well uh, i'll go in front of the judge he'll give me rehab and that'll be that and I can resume my life. And um, so for the following month, I tried to figure out every which way. I tried to, to find people that could take my place if I was in rehab to do my business. There's nobody out there that can do that, that, that uses. There's just not. And then you get the greedy ones. and They're going to take over your yeah, business. Yeah, they're going to take over, and I'm going to lose it all. And, and the fear, the fear, the fear, the constant fear. And how can I maintain? And it, the anxiety, Jesus, a lot. It was enough to kill me. And so uh, I, I was living with somebody at the time, and he was pissing me off. And, and one more time, you know, I just wasn't thinking about what I was doing, and I'm driving recklessly. And I had just done another drug deal, and I got pulled over. And I was like a cop magnet at that point. Well, what had you gotten? Oh, you were out on bail at the time yeah. from the other one. Mm-hmm. So you hadn't been found not guilty yet. Right, so okay. I was pending, so I wasn't even oh, on. Jesus. I wasn't on pro- probation or or any other kind mm-hmm. of. I just pending. I had court dates coming up, and uh, so I got pulled over, and um, they didn't find most of the dope, but they found enough pills. And I I never sold pills, but for this one time I was selling pills, and um, and this one cop had a pharmacist for a wife, and. Uh, he decided to, uh, he, he asked me what kind of pills they were, and I said, they're from my kidneys. He said, you know, I'm, just, I'm out of curiosity, I'm just going to call my wife. Called his wife, and we all sat there. It must have been 105 degrees. I'm in the back of the, the, the police car losing weight, you know, like just sweating bricks. And, um, yeah, he came back with what they really were. It wasn't good. And... uh so they got me on that again. Money. It was you know you talk about did I have enough money after all these bus 
no, I didn't. I mean, my money was dwindling fast. And uh, so uh, they arrested me for possession with intent one more time. And um, so I bailed out of that one. And uh, about a month went by, and I'm thinking, you know, something's got to give here because now I'm thinking I can't keep selling drugs because they're going to start to watch me. And uh, I thought to myself, I'll never forget this. I thought, I got to give myself up. This is ridiculous. I'm bending in two different cases now, and I just, you know, it'll look better if I give myself up, or at least if I go into rehab or something. And so then I went and I proceeded to stay up all night, which I never did. So now I'm, I'm tired. I'm not thinking. I'm falling asleep. You can't fall asleep when you're, when you're a criminal. You just, you've got to stay awake and be really on, you know? And I was exhausted. So I'm walking across the street and, um, I was jaywalking and I jaywalked right in front of a cop and, uh, I kept, I had a little dope on me and, and again, money and, um, paraphernalia and they, uh, they handcuffed me right then and there. I walked over the curb and I put my hands behind my back. They handcuffed me. And there was no bail. That was it. And one more time, I remember thinking to myself, I don't think I'll be getting high tonight. And, and the fear, the fear. How will I? What will I? Oh, my God, what am I going to do? Not knowing that I wasn't going to be able to bail out. You know, I thought, well, I'll be okay. I can just rest for a few days. No. And I haven't found it necessary to... Uh, there was no bail and there was no getting out and... They ended up uh, sentencing me to five years in prison, which I did a couple of years in. But uh, I haven't felt it necessary to, to pick up what, ever again. What do you remember your first night in jail when, you, could, when you couldn't get high? Well, what was I was really lucky. I got to sleep through the first, count them, three months of my, uh, of my incarceration because that's how toxic yeah. I was. I was so bad. So, But I do remember... Um, being that I was so exhausted, and, and uh, county jail is a horrible, horrible place. and uh, Loud. It's loud. It's filthy. It's um, crowded. It's uncomfortable. You know, it's not like you can say, geez, I'm cold. Could I get a blanket? Really? Maybe a month later you might get the blanket. Serious. A month. And, uh, you know, in the very beginning, you're in a holding tank, and everybody's pissed. Everybody's. And um, and I'm just, no, this is not okay with me. I'm hungry. And um, I got no friends here. I'm cold. It was just horrible. And, you know, I was so thin, they couldn't find any clothes to fit me. So uh, Your dad would have been proud. Yeah, yeah right. And there I am. Holding up my 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 pants with shoes that are too big. Oh, it was just the worst thing. And they put me in a cell with the people who had had gone to the bathroom in the cell. They you know they don't care. It's a holding tank. What what? Oh, it was horrible. It was horrible. And that was the beginning. That was just the beginning. But you know, I knew all I had was me. And that's when God kicked in because I needed somebody, you know. I don't ever remember being mad at God. 
I just remember wanting to take back the moment. Boy, if I could just take back the moment. And you can't. Were you mad at yourself? Oh, yeah. I mean, that sounds But I like knew a to no take responsibility but, yeah. from, the, from day one. I did this. I did this. Nobody did this. I didn't get the, I, I didn't have the luxury of blaming uh, a customer for turning me in. Nope, that didn't happen. Nobody turned me in. My stupidity, my, my, my carelessness, my... Greed. My greed. Your sickness. Didn't know I was sick yet. Yeah. Didn't know that, that it all boils down to my illness. But I had no idea. And did, so, you know, did you know you were a drug addict? Yeah. Okay. But you I did, was okay with that. You thought you were just a functioning drug addict. I thought like, I was a very successful, look at me, you guys don't know what you're doing. Like if you can just tweak the environment, drug addiction can work for you. That's, that's kind of and what And that's you, exactly what, what I did. I mean, they looked up to me in jail. Really? Because I was pretty well known out there. So, I mean, so I got some, there were, there were perks. I mean, it, people treated me okay. We're going to take a break here for a second and give some love to our new sponsor, Loot Crate. You guys know the importance of community, especially here on the Mental Illness Happy Hour, the the joy of connecting with people who think and feel uh, like you do, whose interests are similar to yours, where Loot Crate is a monthly subscription box service for epic geek and gamer items and pop culture gear. For less than 20 bucks a month, you get six to eight items that include licensed gear, apparel, collectibles, uh, unique one-of-a-kind items, and uh, and a whole lot more. Um, so you have until uh, the 19th of November at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive uh, that month's crate. And when the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. And so there is limited uh, supplies of these things, which make them more collectible. So go to lootcrate.com slash happy hour and enter the code uh, happy hour to save 10% off any new uh, subscription. Uh, this month's Loot Crate is a head-to-head rough-and-tumble battle for your senses. They're celebrating the fighting heroes, battling rogues, 8-bit brawlers, and other factions that you love from some of your geek and gaming favorites, including exclusive Mega Man and Assassin's Creed collectibles. I might have to get that for my wife. She's an Assassin's Creed freak. It's funny, when I come home... Uh, and she's playing the game, she she will hide it like she's watching porn. I'm like, I, I'm the one who's always you know abusing video games while you're working. You're the one who deserves to play a video game. Anyway, uh, there's also items from Halo, Street Fighter, and, uh, and more surprises. They've got uh, another exclusive t-shirt this month uh, with a design you won't find anywhere else. You do not want to miss out on the action in November. Loot Crate, it's like a friend who knows what you love and surprises you with an awesome present every month. Once again, go to Loot Crate, that's L-O-O-T-C-R-A-T-E dot com slash happy hour and enter the code happy hour to save 10% off any new subscription. They treated me okay. Give me some some snapshots from from prison that kind of stick out in your mind. Oh, God. Well, you know, the abuse. Prison was a different story. County jail was one thing. Prison was a whole other yeah. animal. For people that don't know, jail is where you're held until you're found guilty, right? Or or sentenced, right? And then and now it's it's horrible because now, um, well, if you're fighting a case, you can it used to be you could only uh, I think uh, they would only keep you one year and then they had to move you. But now you, people can do five years at county, and I don't know how they can. Oh my God. But you, there, you, you, you form a family in county. You know, 
it's very close quarters and there's pods and and so you've got like 25 women on on one unit that you get you know and was it uh, segregated racially because not women's because the men's side is the men's yeah but not women at least it used to be now it's they they mix it together but oh do they now uh, yeah it used to be separated um not only um uh, you know, Latinos from blacks, from whites and Asians, but uh, Latinos were also separated by northern and southern, right? Because they were right. at war. Yeah, I've been in jail uh, in the desert in India, and it, that's exactly what it's like. I mean, it gets down to like literally neighborhoods. Yeah, you know. But no, uh, no, I was in jail with you know blacks, whites, uh, Mexicans. It didn't matter in the in the women's jail. And how, how, in what way was it a family? Just because uh, you guys are in trouble. You're all in trouble. You're all fighting for the same thing. And uh, there's a lot of women that are mothers. And um, there's just a tenderness, uh, you know, tenderness. Uh, I hesitate to use that word. But a camaraderie, you know. Uh, there's a lot of anger, you know. There's a lot of bullying. But you, you find your niche, or at least I did, you know, because it's two-man cells and then... And I was really lucky I was able to be in the day room, which I didn't have any um, boundaries. So mm. that was my saving grace because 23 hours in a cell this big, about as big as this table. I'm serious. About, no bigger than this room. No way is it bigger than this room. 23 hours a day. Mm. No. You know, I've been sentenced to this room for the last year and a half. Yeah, but at least you get to leave. I get to bail every night. Yeah. Yeah. You're a lucky man, and you apparently get to sleep in a regular bed. I mean, it's little things like that that you think you'll never see again, and um, and you have to you have to get into a level of acceptance, or you will. There were times I remember you talk about uh, snapshots of prison. I remember there were moments that I thought I just go a little bit further into the insanity, and I'm going to lose it, and I could feel myself holding on. Just don't how, how go was, there. How was the insanity presenting itself? Um, it, I I gotta go. I gotta go. I gotta go. You can't go. Oh my God! I can't do this anymore. I cannot do this was anymore. It, was it like claustrophobia or, or, or just? You know, if they had shown me the door, I couldn't have found it. Um, it, it oh, it's just such a, a sense of futility. It's it's just. Oh, it's the worst for me, for me. And I'm so grateful because I won't go back. I will never go back. I will never do anything that will put me back there. But there's a lot of women that accept that existence. I couldn't. I couldn't imagine. You know, you're in a room with seven other horrible women. Horrible. <laughs> they were your family. <laughs> not, not, in, not in prison. Oh, no. I would have thought prison would be uh You don't get to more. stay. Well, it depends. Okay. Finally, my last year of prison, I was in the same room for one year. And that was okay. because. But most of the other women, they come and they go, you know? So you can't get too close to anybody. But you, I was lucky. Uh, some of my old um, customers were in there. And um, so, you know, I had some buddies. But uh, you're talking about prison now, or yeah. Jail? Okay, prison. Yeah. County jail. You know, I don't have a lot of memories. Like yeah. I said, maybe I maybe that's through. why it seemed better than prison because my thought would have no, been no. Prison's just way the, better. 
Yeah, that's what I was going to say. My thought is prison would have been better than, than oh, jail. Oh, yeah. yeah. You can at least walk around. They let you out every day. Yeah, and go and into you, the yard. And, yeah, and you go in the yard and you... you is there a canteen to, in jail? Yeah, but oh. you got to have money. Yeah. And that means you got to have family. And, excuse me, and that means that you don't owe restitution. Or don't put money on your books because the state will take it. Oh. Yeah. And, and, and food is money. If you've got food, and you've got power. Cigarettes are money. No, you can't smoke in prison. Well, now you can't, but couldn't you back then? No. Nope. Oh. But people go out to the yard to pick the grass to smoke the grass. Mm. Oh, please. <laughs> really? Would I, they really smoke grass? Yeah, sure. What? Mm -hmm. And that was it. And the way you would do that is uh, you'd get Tampex and then take the, the, the paper from the Tampex and roll up the dried grass from the yard or some people smoke tea i on the other hand quit smoking <laughs> <laughs> i really serious everything changed i surrendered when i i it probably took me a week in county jail before i threw my hands up and went you know what okay okay i give and i'm not going to make waves i just was the model prisoner Model prisoner. No, nope, I give. I, the jig's up. What this it, is it. What did it feel like when you surrendered to what was? It, it was did it get easier? Or was it still just as terrible? It was just as terrible. Then, but, then, but acceptance of this is what's happening. This is exactly what's happening. And you better learn how to survive here. So I, I learned how to survive. One day at a time. Five minutes at a time. Do the best you can. And there was little things like um, going on the kosher diet. I was very lucky. I'm a Jew. So uh, I got into the kosher program. So one more time, the drug dealer in me, you know, kicks in. Now I'm getting the best food and everybody wants what I have. So and, and I, I felt it would be um, really, really. Uh, um, what is it? Blasphemy if. Uh, if I sold my food. So I didn't sell my food, but I made friends with my food. And because um, everybody wanted it. Hmm. And I didn't care. You know, I didn't. I mean, it's, you know, it, 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 it's such a humbling experience. Suddenly I went from being a designer, you know, dressed to the nines, got to look my best, color coordinated every day, you know, uh, had to rent larger apartments to accommodate my clothing and shoes into I didn't change my clothes for two years. I um, I went in there with red hair and I came out with gray hair down in my ass. Um, I didn't wear makeup for two years. It's the most. I gained uh, 50 pounds when I was in prison. Something like that. It's just the most humiliating thing and my life has never been the same since. Everything changed. Everything. Everything. When did you get out? What was the date that you got released? July, uh, June 9th, 2008. I think that's it. It's either July or June. What did you begin as you, as you got out and you started getting help to stay sober? What did you begin to find out? Okay, well, the state of California took over that task, and they sent me to rehab. Thank you, God, um, because they give you 200 bucks at the gate, and um, normally most people 
go to the train station, find some drug dealer, and um, it's usually a cop, and they just send him right back. But uh, the state of California decided that they were going to um, mandate me to a, a rehab. So they sent a car. They sent a car for me, and only me. And uh, so I went kicking and screaming because I want to be free, you know? But what my head said to do was, let's go get loaded. And I never got that chance, thank you, God. So I went to rehab, still with the attitude, you know, one more time. But accepting, okay, this is what, this is what we're doing now. Okay, I'll play this game for a while. And so I didn't, one more time, I didn't hear anything. Did you think you were going to be able to keep yourself sober and you didn't need this rehab? But or you know, did you? Or did you think you were going to manage drugs still? But you just weren't going to deal. Or I well, mean, I what didn't did know you? What else to do? What was your I'm game gonna, plan? I, well, I didn't really have one. I. You, you just knew you didn't want to be in prison. Right. Right. So and now you know when you're in prison, you have all these plans. You know, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. But nobody wants you when you get out. Nobody, you know, all the stuff that you've been wanting to do for years and you're now rehabilitated and you're a model citizen. Yeah, really? Go fill out an application. Well, I don't know how. I don't know how. I don't know how to take the bus. I don't know how to go and rent an apartment. You know, I have no money. I, do, I, do, I don't know how to What do, do you crap. put down on your job resume? Because, well... Rehab taught us about that. What do you do with your job resume? So I was, uh, you know, when I was in prison, I used to tutor uh, illiterate women. So I put down tutor for the state of California. And, um, you know, we have we have our ways getting around yeah. this. And it worked for me, you know, but really the only thing I could do was be a telemarketer. And, and no. And that would have put me right back on the streets if I would, really would have... Uh, but as God would have it, one more time, um, I wasn't getting any jobs. So um, I really had to get creative. And it, it, was, um, it was about three months after I'd been in rehab that something happened, and they kicked me out of rehab and sent me to one more time um, a state facility, downtown, horrible place. And uh, I was on parole. So they kicked me out. And, um, and they were going to send me back to prison and I don't know what I, I, I didn't know what I had done wrong, you know? And, um, and as I'm sitting in my parole officer's office the very next day, the phone rang and one more time, it was the Claire foundation that I had just been kicked out of. And, um, and they said, you know what? We made a mistake. We want her to come home. And so Claire took me back. And that's when I decided, you know what? I'm going to stay sober. I'm going to do this thing. Because when I was at the state facility, across the street, there were dealers. So it was like, I'm out on the street now. I can do whatever I want. And I made a, a conscious decision. No, I'm going to do this. So I thought, I'll give it a try, you know, how hard could it be? And so that's when I started to do exactly whatever it was that I had to do in order to survive. Mm -hmm. And so that, um, that ex-customer of mine that had been in, in Chowchilla with me, she was out in the valley um, managing some telemarketing place, and she had a place to live. And I called her, and she, she, 
she took me in. She gave me a job. And um, I would take the bus every single day to that job for hours at 5 o'clock in the morning. And um, I lived in a cockroach apartment in Van Nuys and uh, slept on her cockroach couch. It was horrible. And I did it for a long time because I had to, because I didn't have what I, I didn't know I had a choice. What, if anything, in your remodeled life Mm -hmm. in the little apartment taking the bus, what little moments were you able, if any, to appreciate? Um, All of them, actually, to tell you the truth, because I was sober. But what little moments? One of the little moments was when uh, I picked up a directory and uh, realized, you know, I got no friends out here. It's a support group directory listing. Yeah. Meetings and stuff like right. that. Yeah. And uh, I found a meeting that I could take the bus to. I only had two days off a week. And, um, and I, you know, I was taking a tremendous amount of contrary action all day, every day. Everything I did, I didn't want to do. Your addiction would be telling you one thing, and so yeah. you knew to stay I sober. To, I have to not yeah, listen to the addict voice. I know how to voice. get loaded out there. Mm-hmm. I know how to survive on the street. And so, but... I was on a mission, you know, and I'm going to do this thing. Plus, my roommate, you know, she wasn't on the same page as I was. And, you know, she had started to drink. And, no, I wasn't going to do this. I'm going to I'm gonna be the person I want to be because I'm curious, if nothing else. I really want to see how they do it. And um, I didn't notice that, you know, everybody, my family was still pissed at me and my brother, you know. And I'm thinking everything's just fine because... Don't you know, uh, I did prison and I'm out and I'm staying clean today, you know? And um, I took the bus to this meeting on one of my Saturdays. And that's when my life began. And okay, I, this is a, these women are nice. Or they're not, you know? They, if they knew my story, they'd hate me. But I always felt less than in, in low life, you know? And, I still hadn't even learned how to dress yet. You know, I was still wearing, I was wearing street clothes, but the same street clothes every day. And, and I gained so much weight and there's my low self-esteem. And, it, you know, my whole recovery has been such baby steps, such incredibly small steps. But the one thing I have continued to do is I kept coming back because they told me there was hope. They told me I could do this. And I wanted so much to get what they had. And I was going to do it. Isn't it amazing how what we latch on to is less of a belief in ourselves and more of their belief in us? Had to. It was all I, there was. That's what's so beautiful about support groups is you're like, you could discount one or two of them believing in you, but when there's a dozen of them that know your name and hug you and tell you that they can see that you're growing, you're like, this, 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 this can't. They can't all be bullshitting me. Right. And and what I had let go of is, um, you know, I for years I found excuses as to why they were such horrible, it was such a horrible place, that, that support group, you know. Um, why, what do you mean it was a horrible place? Uh, they don't understand me. They, you know, they're better than me. Um, oh, your perception was yeah. that it was a horrible place. Yeah. And what I learned was, you know, this is a two-way street. 
they will be there for me if I reach out for them to grab me. And uh, what I had not been doing for years is reaching out. You know, I mean, I still do that today. I, I Sit in the back with your arms folded and judge everybody? No, I don't do that. No, <laughs> no, I sit in the front. It doesn't matter if it's in a classroom or if it's in a meeting. I sit in front. By the way, but, I highly recommend anybody out there who's going to try a support group to not sit all the way in the back uh, with your arms folded and avoid people. I encourage right. you to sit in the front because as uncomfortable as it is. nobody's going to reach out for you unless you put your arm out for them to grab. Yeah. And raise that's your the hand. hardest part. Yeah. Sometimes just raise your hand and say, I'm new and I need help. And that's yeah. really, and I'm embarrassed to say I need help. Right. But I think I do. And it's very important for us in recovery not to um, isolate because I, I wanted them to, to piss me off so I'd have an excuse. But you know, only in retrospect, and because it's been a long time now, um, can I see that I I wanted what I can, what I what I have today way more than what I had, and um, so when I search for that horrible story of my addiction, and you know, yeah, it was fun, yeah, I had a good time out there, but you know what, it was it was a hard life. It was really really hard. It was lonely. It was. It was empty. It was um, unsustainable. Yeah, and and exhausting and selfish and lonely and all those things. And so, in the big picture, it was horrible. It was horrible. I wouldn't go back for anything. Not even the best days. And I had some fun, but fun, you know. My fun now is um, maybe a self-realization moment. That's to me is a good give me, time. Give me one. Share one with me. Um, that uh, I can't, I don't get to blame you anymore. That's a biggie. Uh, you know, uh, assuming responsibility for myself. I love that. Um, the fact that I have a part in everything. I love that. Um, the fact that I can be self-supporting through my own contributions. Uh, what do you mean that you're supporting yourself? Yeah, that mm. you know, I yeah, I'm not a telemarketer anymore. I'm a full-time student and and uh and I counselor. Counselor. And I don't make a lot of money. But you don't need a lot of money. You know, it's not I think that um one of the one of the self-realization moments, I'm not going for the ring anymore. I'm not going for that brass ring. I've got it. You know, and it comes every morning when I wake up, and and uh, I can thank God for one more day of allowing me a to wake up and b to be sober when I wake up. So, what would you say to somebody who says, "Well, look at you. You have no hair. Yeah. You have no eyebrows. Right. Sorry. You went through chemotherapy. You had breast cancer. Why would God do that to you if there's a God? I just look at them and say, I guess you wish you were as lucky as I am, don't you? Because I am the luckiest person in the world. I get to carry a message today. I get to sit with the bravest women I've ever met in my life in, in chemo clinics and, and offer them water if that's what they want, whatever they want. I get to say, you know, we can do this. I get to tell them about living five seconds at a time when you just don't think you can do it. You know, I, in prison, 
you know, I just didn't think I could do it one more minute. And I learned about 60 seconds at a time. And when I was in chemotherapy, I just didn't think I could do it for five more seconds. And then I would do it for five more seconds. And, um, and it was a wonderful thing knowing that this too shall pass, whether it be I die or I live, this too shall pass. I, this is not going to be forever. Nothing is forever. And, um, I, I'm so blessed that I get to, excuse me, carry the message to women that, you know, I don't think a lot of people will be in the position that I, I was as far as prison, but a lot of women are in the position with, with cancer and we can do this. We can do this. And, um, love brought me through and, um, you know what? So I'm bald. Really? I've had long I told, hair. I told you, I, I I think it's a good look on you. Yeah, I've, I've I had I always, long hair, so I've done that. And Joni's great at letting me crack ball jokes around yeah. her. Um, and it's growing back. But, but it does, It it it's... Uh, and I, I'm even black right here. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> One black hair yeah, and a no, sea no, of gray. It's it's really tight curls right there. Yeah. And the rest of it's, you know, so I've got best of both worlds. And yeah. I do have eyebrows. I do. I just don't have any hair anyplace else. So. <laughs> well, that's nice. You don't got to shave. Hey. Right? Every day, I thank God. God, I don't have to shave Here's today. Here's a plus. It's all good, you know? I get to um, I get to speak all over. Uh, I get to um, speak at Pierce College and all other, and a few other places about breast cancer surviving. And it gives me purpose. Who would have Isn't thought? Purpose the greatest. It is. Purpose, purpose and, and, and I don't think um, that everybody could handle having cancer. So I think that that one more time is God working in my life because he knew I could. You know, I've never, ever, uh, I've never thought, why me? Never. You know, I got the news. I cried for about, I don't know, 10 minutes. And then all the fear and all that stuff. And then I put one foot in front of the other and took the next indicated step. And I, that's what I do, you know. I just accept the fact, okay, this is what we're doing today. We're doing chemotherapy, you know. And, and, and I'll tell you something. The people that held my hand and let me cry and, and let me held my head over a toilet and... Uh, Help, been, Joni. Held your bald head over a toilet. Yeah, thank you very much for reminding me. I always forget until I go brush my teeth, and then I, oh yeah, right, that. So it, it's a rude awakening, but oh well. <laughs> oh well, the red carpet is, you know, they're just going to have to you know, get your, used to it. Your your spirit is just contagious. It's it's when I when you walk into a room, um, I perk up. Really? I, I do. I do. When I when uh -huh. I see you that that third Monday every month. Yeah. Um I look for you. You know, when I'm when I'm in that that mean that business meeting we go to and I look around and I see where's Joni because I always gotta make sure I wanna go get a oh, hug. That's so nice. I go wanna get I wanna get a hug from Joni. Uh -huh. And um I love listening to you talk. Um I I just love your spirit. Thanks. I love your spirit. Oh, I love you, you too. Yeah. You are um you're, uh, you're a We match. are so lucky, aren't we? You're a match. We are. I don't wish what we've been through on anybody, but I wish the things we've gleaned from it on everybody, which is and the, who the would have thought? feeling of meaning and purpose. Yeah. 
Who would have thought? You know, like that song says, like a wretch like me. Who would have thought that it, it was so important for us to go to the school we went to? So important. Forced to go to the school. Yeah. yeah. So we could come out knowing what we know. Yeah. And carry that message. And if if I can help one person, then it was all worth it. It really, really was. And, you know, I, I, I don't know anybody... I don't see anybody that I used to see anymore, but um, but I I'm I'm sort of I think they know that in my absence there's a reason that I don't see them. You know, like maybe sometimes some people will think, I wonder whatever happened to her that when maybe, you were drug dealing. Yeah, yeah, maybe she got clean. Hmm. You know. Well, I love you, and I'm glad you're in my life. And Me thank too. you so much for. For coming on and sharing. Oh, this was an honor. Thank you. Many, many thanks to uh, to Joni. Before we get to uh, some emails and surveys, I want to remind you guys there's a couple of different ways to support the show. If you feel so inclined, you can go to the website, mentalpod.com, and uh, you can make a one-time PayPal donation or my favorite, a recurring monthly donation, which helps keep the show going. And um, you can sign us up for as little as five bucks a month. You can also support us uh, by using our Amazon search portal. When you're going to buy something at Amazon, enter through our search box, not to be confused with the search box uh, on our homepage for our site itself, which, by the way, is a great way. If you're looking for an episode about a specific topic, type that topic in there, and episodes or blogs will come up that uh, um, have that in their description. But anyway... Uh, Shop through our Amazon search portal, and uh, then Amazon. If you buy something, Amazon gives us a couple of nickels. That definitely helps support the show. And um, you can support us non financially by going to iTunes, writing something nice, and giving us a good rating. That boosts our um, rating and uh, brings more people to the show because it, we get higher up on the iTunes ranking. And you can support us by spreading the word through social media. Uh, that really, really helps. And thank you to all of you guys who support the show in various ways. It um, definitely helps keep me going. This is an email I got from a listener and a monthly donor uh, named Phil. And um, he writes, um, I'm a middle-aged professor who is only now at age 45 coming to terms with lifelong depression. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, probably because most ac academics won't talk about it, but academia is full to the brim uh, with people with mood disorders. And as I've started opening up to trusted colleagues about my own situation, I've been discovering that most of them have their own depression or anxiety issues. And um, this is something I see a lot. I get a lot of emails from people who are or fill out the surveys who are either in the process of getting their PhDs or they just got their PhDs. And I wrote Phil back and I said, um, basically I said that, and a couple of thoughts that I have is I wonder if the pressure in academia to not only get the PhD, which is incredibly difficult, to be at the top and stand out after getting it, you know, to hit that home run because, uh, you know, to just hit singles might mean obscurity in the field of uh, academia. I'm going to say academia one more time. 
And my other thought is the tendency for intelligent people to rely on their intellect to solve problems and ignore their emotions, especially signals from their bodies and their souls telling them important things like this person is not safe around you or you really hate doing this thing that you're you're doing. Um, because I believe we can become addicted to our intellects without realizing it. And any addiction numbs us. It short circuits the feedback from our bodies and our souls. You know, for years, I thought the answer was to know as much about the world as possible. You know, I'd be annoyed if my wife talked when a news story was on TV because I felt like I had to, you know, keep up with the world and missing out on information was falling behind and made my future less safe. But it turns out the peace and safe feeling of safety came from knowing as much about the way my brain, body, and soul work, which then allowed me to relax in the middle of external hurricanes, you know, figurative hurricanes, and to figure out the, what the truth was or, you know, to prioritize issues instead of solely filtering it through my fears and selfishness, which tend to warp reality and always make it about me. You know, we don't have to abandon our intellects. You know, I like it to having a sports car, a great thing, but not necessary to use when you're simply walking into the next room. And so much of life is just getting up and walking into the next room. But our brains tell us it's a cross-country race. And I got to say, since I've learned to listen to my body and my soul more, I now feel less like a lone race car driver and more more like one of the beautifully weird people uh, on the Magical Mystery Tour bus. If you guys have never seen that movie, it's uh, and you're Beatles fans, you should check it out. It's not one of their best movies, but it's uh, it, if there was a musical to express uh, this podcast, the beautiful characters, um, at least visually, I think. Fuck it, it's a horrible movie. Don't watch it. You know what the, the hell I'm telling you to go? <laughs> I couldn't sit through it. Here I am telling you to go. If you're going to watch a Beatles movie, watch Help. That is, God, my favorite thing in the in the movie Help is when they're singing in the studio and you can see like the breath and the spittle come out of John Lennon when he's singing. God, I, I would have given anything to see those guys record in the studio. Anyway, let's get to the surveys. This is from the Body Shame Survey, and this is filled out by, um, who is this filled out by? Um... She calls, I think we, we had her on another uh, survey, uh, Unidentified Feline, and she writes, what do you like or dislike about your body? I dislike that it is unhealthy, but that it is also what I love about it. My body is the result of 12 years of anorexia slash bulimia. It is me. It defines me, or at least that is the value I assign it. I love my collarbones, hips, ribs, and shoulder blades, which all stick out a little more than everyone else's. But I hate that I am damaging my insides. I hate that I've almost accepted that these illnesses will kill me earlier than I would have died if I'd never had them. I hate that I love feeling broken. There are and These are the first times I've ever admitted my illnesses to anyone. When confronted, I've always denied it. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I really encourage you to open up to somebody who's safe. Because um, you don't have to feel that way. You can develop coping mechanisms that are better than that, that won't hurt your insides. This is an awful moment from um, a woman who calls herself Patsy. And uh, she writes, I had a problem with panic attacks 
in my late teens and 20s. I got selected for jury duty when I was about 19 and was, of course, very anxious about it. Um, sure enough, I got picked for a jury. A doctor was on trial for malpractice that caused the patient to die in his care. It was day number two, and of course, here comes the panic attack in a very crowded courtroom. I had to get out of there. I kept thinking, what if I run out? Will I get arrested? What do I do? I was starting to sweat and fidget, my heart racing. I felt like I was surely going to pass out or die. The judge was even staring at me. He called a recess, thankfully, and when I got into the juror's room, I told the bailiff I was not feeling well at all. He went to the judge, and the judge said he thought something was wrong. He asked the doctor on trial to check my vitals and see if I was okay. I was out in the hallway being examined by the very doctor on trial while everyone was watching. I felt humiliated but was dismissed. To this day, I cringe when I get a juror notice, and I never did find out how the trial turned out. That man was my father, and they sentenced him to death, and I blame you. This uh, this is an email I got from a uh, listener who calls herself Bibi, and uh, she writes, in response to the woman, uh, I had read a survey about a woman who could only orgasm by stuffing her clothes and imagining that she was uh, heavy. And uh, she writes, in response to the woman who used to stuff her clothes from the time she was very young to get off, uh, although, of course, we didn't know what that was at the time, uh, and is turned on by big women, uh, and then in parent, there's a lot of parentheses here. She writes, you know, I've listened to so many episodes back to back recently and can't find the episode number, although I think it was fairly recent. Apologies for that. Anyhow, I just wanted to say that she is so not alone. I have the same or very similar fetish, and it is a fetish, meaning that it's hardwired. There ain't nothing you can do about it. It's what you think about 100% of the time when you're trying to get off. From the age of four or five, I used to stuff my Barbie's clothes to make them fat. Stuff my pillows to make it seem like I was lying beside someone round and cuddly. I would do these things on autopilot. It was nothing conscious. I wasn't having orgasms at that age. It just felt good. I gradually came to realize that this was what I needed to get off. I was embarrassed for many years about what seemed a grotesque and disgusting preference. But in the end, I couldn't deny it. I always went after men with large bellies, which was often problematic for both of us as one of the big turn-ons for me is men who are proud of bellies and love to touch themselves and feel their erotic roundness. And most guys like that just want to be skinny and hate their bodies, and that's definitely not a turn-on. My porn is looking at men's large bellies. No faces, no genitals. I don't want to see that. It doesn't do a thing for me. Just go on Fantasy Feeder, for example, and see the tens of thousands of members. Don't be fooled by the title. It's not all about forced, forced feeding. It's mostly about pictures of large, luxur luxurious men and women who love to show off their bodies and the people who appreciate that type. I'll just say this. Having freckles or having blue eyes... A fetish is a thing you cannot change. So really, the only option is to accept it. Hey, at least something turns you on, and you know what it and you know what it is. Big women, big men, there's a whole world of interesting people out there who would love to hear from you. I married someone who is totally accepting and not non-judgmental of my fetish. Hey, what middle-aged dude wouldn't be? Ha ha. But really, he just took it in stride and didn't think it was weird at all. Now I just have to sit back and watch his belly grow. Sick? Who the fuck cares? Fuck judgment. Fuck society that makes you feel bad about not being turned on by Brad Pitt. Ick. Can't be helped. Go with it. Accept it. Or live a miserable, shameful life. It's nothing to be ashamed of. 
Thank you, BB. And then I emailed her back and I said, um, uh, it's so great that you've come to accept your brain. Uh, I was just thinking the other day that it is like eye color and was weight an issue in your home growing up. You know me, I'm like an orgasm detective. And she writes, yes, my mother still suffers from anorexia. I can't believe she's still alive. She's in a wheelchair now. Can't stand up anymore. 77 pounds. Always harassed me about my weight, which was, uh, which was always uh, fluctuating up and down 15 pounds, but around the 120 mark, so I was never huge or anything. She's in total denial about her condition. She's a narcissist and I'd say has borderline personality disorder as well, and in total denial, she also um, was abusive emotionally and physically. And um, yeah, I... I I'm fascinated by the link between what gets us off and um, our environment. This is a body uh, shame survey filled out by um, a woman who calls herself Fuckface. She's gay. Uh, she's 16. And she writes... Um, Given my previous survey responses, I'm a bit surprised to realize that I don't despise my body quite as much as my personality. Honestly, it might just be the time of the day, but I thought I'd give it a shot at being positive. Uh, I'm a cisgender female, but I'm a lesbian who identifies as butch. I prefer to be perceived as more masculine, even though due to finances or lack thereof, I being 16, and my own ineptitude, I can't always play the part. I recently had a birthday and got some cash from relatives. I keep going to the thrift store to buy myself more uh, some men's clothing, but it's a much more diff- it's much more difficult than I thought it would be. Even though I tend towards the taller side for teenage girls, my frame is much too small to fit anything other than a men's small shirt or the very occasional medium, and there never seems to be a hell of a lot of small men's t-shirts. My breasts make it difficult to get a shirt that actually fits, that isn't absurdly baggy around my arms and waist. Same thing goes for pants. My hips slash upper thighs are way too wide. Most pants that I can fit uh, them into are embarrassingly baggy. I like... Um, I like baggy pants, but those make me look like a fool. As I shop, I can't help but compare myself to the men. I'm used to being considered tall, but surrounded by men, I suddenly feel incredibly short and small. I've just recently gotten over the years of fat shaming from when I was a child from my mother, who my grandmother thinks was probably anorexic or bulimic as a teenager, but that seems to me that she still has some unhealthy eating habits. I've been getting fit, which helps, but I still feel some shame when I look in the mirror, and I'm embarrassed by how weak and unmuscular I am at the same time. I'm worried that my hair is too feminine looking. It's pretty short, ends at the top of my neck, but it's thick and has a little bit of wave to it, and I don't know how I could make it look better. Every time I take a step towards being the butchiest butch I can be, I feel great. I just wish it was easier. I almost forgot that the point of me doing this was to try to be positive. My awkward teenage acne is clearing up, and I'm getting in shape. Even though some of the, my features are still soft and sort of lightly feminine looking, I have a nice masculine face shape face shape and jaw, along with some thick angled eyebrows that give me a kind of intense look. Even though I hate my breasts and wish I could have top surgery, when I wear a tight sports bra, which is almost all the time, they kind of flatten out and make my chest look uh, wider like a dude's. I'm also, I also kind of like my calves. I don't know, they're just nice and solid. 
I only really started to notice things that I like about my body recently, starting when I finally cut my hair. I'm still sort of struggling with body image, but things seem to be getting better now that I've discovered my true sexuality and I'm no longer headed in completely the wrong direction, aka push-up bras and skirts. I tried that for maybe a month or two and I felt like a piece of dog shit dropped in glitter. I thought that I just needed to force myself to be feminine and everything would be fine, but really I was just shutting down my true self, who's a big old boxer-wearing diesel dyke. (laughs) And then, uh, any comments to make the podcast better? She writes, I'm glad to see that you, Paul, have been talking so much about different aspects of the LGBT slash queer community. Um, I just wanted to warn you to make sure you get everything straight, no pun intended. For example, you defined cisgender as someone whose gender fits neatly into a box. This is true. However, transgender people's gender also fits neatly into a box. What you described is called binary, when someone's gender fits onto the gender binary, either male or female. Someone whose gender does not fit neatly into a box would be called non-binary. This would include agender, gender fluid, bigender, etc. Cisgendered is best defined as identification with the sex with which one is assigned at birth. Thank you so much for that. I love, I love uh, that part of this podcast is when I just get loving. Um, first of all, I get to discover the diversity of people's experiences how they express themselves, what their inner lives are, but when they help educate me in a way that's loving and diplomatic. So thank you for that. And you're a fucking smarty pants at 16. Um, this is Struggle in a Sentence. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Fushi Face, F-U-C-H-I Face. And um, about her PTSD, she writes, I have a disorder meant for soldiers and those with real courage, not for dumb 20-something girls who freeze instead of fight. Um about being a sex crime victim. I was raped on my best friend's birthday a few years ago. I never told her. Every year since, I feel physically ill and want to puke the moment I think to wish her a happy birthday. Um, Snapshot from her life. A few days after my ex-boyfriend raped me, I called him repeatedly because I was worried he was mad at me and wanted to make sure we were cool. So pathetic, but that's me. So desperate for people to like me that I'd put up with months of emotional abuse only to worry about what my rapist might think. That is so heavy. That is so heavy. Oh, sending you some love. That is... And and that's why it breaks my heart when somebody who's been violated goes to a loved one or somebody they think it's safe to confide in and that person tells them, to just get over it. I, I just want to amass, and maybe I will, a document, including ripples like this, that people who've never been violated don't understand how how much it permeates your life. And that that really becomes the struggle. You know, it's not the thought that something happened to you which certainly is part of it but it's the it's all these mini avalanches that are just constantly set in motion triggered by the slightest things and so many of us then engage in addictions which numb us so we lose touch with what our body's really telling us which is 
The trigger is happening. This is scary, you know. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Schlee. And she writes, um, I'd been dating this guy for a bit, not long, maybe a month. I knew that I liked him a lot, and that made me nervous. I was anxious because I knew that I'd have to tell him about my eating disorder at some point if we continued dating and got serious. My eating disorder is a huge part of my life and something that I struggle with every day. I always dread telling people about it because I fear it'll drive him away, but I decided that I needed to tell him. A few days later, we were lying down on his bed talking. I felt this gigantic pressure in my chest. I told myself to say it. I could only manage the words, I'm scared, in a barely audible whisper. I'm scared because I like you a lot, I said, and I am vulnerable. I'm pretty messed up, and what if you don't like me? I'm pretty messed up, he said. Inside, I sort of rolled my eyes. I was expecting him to talk about his angsty teenage years. No, but really, I'm fucked up, I said. I've had an eating disorder since I was nine. I said it and immediately wished I hadn't. I felt exposed. I knew that I'd just fucked up our relationship. But my brain is a liar. He rolled onto his back, put his right hand on his face. He let out a sort of relieved and stunned-sounding laugh. Sometimes I believe there is a God, he said. I was so scared to tell you that I'm a recovering anorexic. And though this isn't a happy revelation per se, I felt a tsunami of joy rush through my body. I remember we're both laughing, holding each other. I remember feeling safe. God, is that beautiful. That's the podcast in a, in a, two paragraphs. Holy shit, did I put a lot of ginger in that tea. If you guys have never grated ginger into green tea, you're missing out. It is so good. This is from the babysitter survey, and this was filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, Pamplemousse. And she writes, uh, my babysitter would play, quote, house with me. She would find a way to separate me from my brothers, and we would lay in bed, and she would molest me, sometimes with clothes on and sometimes not. It always was presented as playing, and I was given a choice of what we would do, but I was only eight or so, um, so it took me a long time to realize that I wasn't somehow complicit or responsible for it. She was in high school, but obviously she uh, she knew it was wrong. Um, did you ever tell anyone? Once when I was 13, I told my friends in a sleepover. They had been through similar experiences, a sad reminder that childhood sex abuse is all too common. We never talked about it again, and I've fallen out of touch with those people. I just recently told my therapist and my partner. I did not think it was normal, but I internalized the shame and guilt for so long. It has had a huge effect on my personal growth and self-esteem. I spent my teens and 20s thinking I was messed up and perverted. It also made me question my sexuality, which feels like a whole other level of betrayal by my babysitter to make me question who I am. Uh, What feelings come up when you remember this? I still feel shame about it, but I'm working through it with my therapist and coping skills. I feel angry that I let the trauma affect me for so long and that I didn't take care of myself for so long. See, I'm still internalizing everything. Um, do you feel any damage was done? I realize now that my reactions and quote 
participation was innocent and natural. I wasn't some weird, messed-up eight-year-old. I trusted my babysitter and appreciated the attention she was giving me. What she did was not innocent or natural. She was old enough to know better. If you're a parent, has your experience uh, influenced how you view your children being babysat? I'm a parent now, and I had buried all these emotions for so long. When I got pregnant, it was bam. All these memories and emotions were on the forefront of my mind. I knew before I even had my baby that I would need to work this shit out with a therapist. I tried to interview some babysitters so that we could have some dates, but it was too overwhelming, and after the interview, I compulsively read through the responses to this survey to convince myself that the incredibly bright, mature, and cheerful 20-year-old that I had just met would definitely take advantage of my son. Needless to say, I am not comfortable leaving my son alone with anyone except my in-laws and his teachers at daycare. For now, my husband is on board with this, but I realize it probably isn't a long-term solution. I like that some of the responses here talk about waiting until your kids can talk and having conversations with them. I also think about putting it out there with the babysitter and just being upfront about it with them. I don't know. That might make them run. Thank you for sharing that. Um, this is, and, and it's been my experience in healing that the questioning yourself, blaming yourself, all of that stuff does begin to ease with, with time. Um, this is a happy moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Sonic Cat. And he has two moments. And the first one, he writes, After my brother's wedding in D.C., my sister and I, uh, we were quite drunk, walked a mile or so to a 7-Eleven, bought a pack of cigarettes and a big bag of white cheddar popcorn. Neither of us are smokers, but we found out that night that we share an affinity for drunk smoking. We sat on the curb outside of a 7-Eleven. I wonder if there's secondhand drunk smoke. Uh, we sat on the curb outside of the 7-Eleven, smoked cigarettes, ate popcorn, and had a deep conversation in which it was revealed that she had suffered from anxiety and panic attacks her entire life. I've been suffering with anxiety and depression for over a decade, but because we are both very good actors, neither of us knew the pain the other was in. It was like a floodgate of emotions opened. We sat there on the curb for three hours relating to each other's experiences and being completely open. Knowing that my sister was going through the same thing I was made me feel less alone and like I had someone in my corner. Since then, we spend more time together and I look forward to our conversations. That's so beautiful. And that might been have been the only healthy experience somebody has had on the premises of a 7-Eleven. Um... And then he writes, my second happy moment also involves my sister. We have a Halloween tradition in which every year I drive up to her house and we watch Halloween and the Midnight Hour, uh, which is a cult classic movie. We were drinking and eating pizza. We laughed our way through both movie, movies, making fun of the acting and enjoying the scares. I decided I'd spend the night because I had drank a bit too much. My sister put on some old family movies and we laughed so hard for hours at my dad's awesome 80s mustache and my brother's ability to piss my parents off every five minutes. There was a video of my sister holding me when I was a baby, and it just showed how close my sister and I have been our whole lives. It felt so good to laugh and see how lucky we are to have a good family. Oh, that's beautiful. That is just beautiful. And, and honestly, I'm jealous. I always wish that I had had sisters. Um, I suppose it was, you know, just wanting to have, uh, you know, that female warmth in, in my life. But, um, my best friend Mike, who was a guest on this show, has um, has sisters who are really, really sweet, and um, I was just always 
struck by just how much it, it I wanted what they had when they would be laughing together at dinner. It, it just, uh, anyway. This is, um, I put a, a a half a dozen surveys in here that have to do um, with the ripples of sexual trauma. And um, this is one that, God, there's just, there's so many. And, and this is from the Body Shame Survey. And this woman writes, uh, I've always been told how strikingly beautiful I am. I feel like an asshole just saying that. It always made me feel uncomfortable, but now it's excruciating because the boyfriend I had who raped me told me I was beautiful and that when we first met, he knew he had to have me. Now when anyone comments on my looks, I feel sick and want to vomit because all I see is his face. I feel rude because I don't know what to say and I can't explain to them why it makes me uncomfortable. So sorry that you had to go through that and um, just know that there are people that understand these ripples and how, you know, I was at my support group tonight and a woman uh, was sharing about being taken advantage of when she was uh, passed out and she was crying and she said, I know it's not my fault, but I still feel like I had a part in it. And that is another one of the ripples is you can understand things intellectually, but that doesn't make it so emotionally. Two completely different things. Um, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Wounded Healer. And he writes, During the first year of my psych- psychiatry residency, I ended up in a mental hospital for a suicide attempt. Uh, a one-time bad reaction to medication and some inc- incredibly stressful life cir- circumstances. Long story. Fortunately, it was not the hospital where I or anyone I knew was working at the time. There were several... Slow down. There were several times when I was not at the hospital where I or anyone I knew was working at the time. Uh, I just read that. (laughs) There were several times when I was asked about my occupation and when I responded that I was a psychiatry resident and named the hospital where I was working, the staff inevitably... Ivy. Ivy. The staff inevitably responded... You're so lucky. I've heard that's a great place to work. Can I give you my card in case you hear of any openings? It was a little bit disconcerting being under the care of a staff who all wanted to work in a different mental hospital, but I ended up having a very restful and healing 72 hours. Before I left, I let the staff know that I was impressed with them and the hospital and that they should consider just staying there instead of trying to switch to the hospital where I worked. Over the years, I've found that my experience being on the other side of the hospitalization and mental health treatment experience has been invaluable as I try to provide compassionate care to my patients. But I will never forget the awfulsome experience of admitting to the staff of the mental health unit where I was a patient that I was a psychiatric resident in a different mental hospital and then being told how lucky I was. You cannot make this shit up. You cannot. And that fires me up too because that's one more person out there that knows what somebody is going through when they're hospitalized. I read so many surveys from people who just are treated like objects when they're in there and 
the time in that person's life when they need compassion and love the most. Then again, I don't know what it's like to work in a hospital and how overwhelming that must be. Look at me, pleasing everybody. Go fuck yourself, Paul. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this is filled out by Jane. She is bisexual in her 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Um, I would call this more than slightly dysfunctional. She writes, Mom and Dad are loving, intelligent, thoughtful, funny. Also, loners, hoarders, addicts, anxious, depressive. I love them so much, but we're not quite normal, are we? You're common. You're 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 not. Um, you know what I mean by common. You're, uh, but I wouldn't call it healthy. Uh, anyway, continuing. Uh, she's never been sexually, physically, or emotionally abused. Darkest thoughts. I wonder what it would be like to kill another person. I'm not crazy, and I don't want to kill anyone, but I daydream about being put in a situation where I have to kill to protect myself. And then the aftermath. How would I feel? How would other people react? What would I discover about myself? I've never told anyone about this, not even my best friend. I haven't been in love for five years, and I fear that either I have lost the capacity to love or I am fundamentally unlovable, or both. I sometimes think I've missed every chance I had to be extraordinary and will die an utterly average person leaving nothing behind. I must have killed you when I said your situation was common. Um, I can look back and see all those missed chances I didn't notice at the time, like neon signs that are all facing away from me. I walk past them, turn around, and there they are, so obvious and clear, but now it's too late. Darkest Secrets. It's not a secret from my friends, but I'm a very sexually experimental I'm very sexually experimental and have been involved in all kinds of out-there sex acts. My sexuality is a very important part of me, but I'm also afraid that being such a sexually weird person has cut me off from 90% of the available romantic partners in the world. Fantasy is most powerful to you, sometimes dominating a man or a woman, sometimes being used and abused by multiple men. It's weird. I'm weird. No, I don't think you're weird. Uh, What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I wish it was easier to tell my friends how much they mean to me without being afraid of freaking them the fuck out. Um, You know, that's a really... I'm trying to think of what a way that you could... What about just looking them in the eye and just saying, I hope this doesn't make you uncomfortable, but you mean a lot to me. And then make fun of yourself. How about that? Anyway, thank you for that survey. And then... um, Finally, this is a happy moment, and bear me bear with us on this one. It's a little uh, on the long side, but it's um, it's worth it. It's beautiful, and it's filled out by a woman who calls herself Hope. Oh, theme music is kicking in. Not quite yet, my friend. Uh, Anyway, she writes, um, she's in her 30s. She writes, I've been listening to the show for a while, but this is the first time I've ever filled out a survey. I think sometimes the painful things I've gone through seem overwhelming to type out, but I can easily share a happy moment to try to help others feel happy, question mark. Anyway, here goes. A little background. I've been going through a tough time, depression-wise, and somehow stumbled upon your podcast. I think maybe after doing some sort of Google search, for something to listen to that might be on the subject. Came across your podcast and started listening obsessively. Heard you talking about therapy in a lot of groups, which was something I had yet to try and was curious about. 
Somehow the listeners' answers or the interviews finally motivated me to make the call and get into therapy again. Also, my depression was getting much worse as the days went by and I was worried what I was going to do. I go for a few months. My therapist asks if I'd like to join a group she's putting together. It just so happens she was already counseling a lot of women that have all gone through sexual abuse that had a violent twist on it that was somehow unique. That is about as detailed as I want to get here. She decides to get us all together to start a group, and I hear stories from these women that are startlingly slow down, Paul. That are startlingly similar to my own coping mechanisms they had that I thought only I had. Things got real and very open. Some members didn't come as often, but I never missed a session unless I absolutely had to. I got so much out of the experience. It was hard getting close to people. Still is for me. It quickly brought it home that I could be in a room of people that have the same experiences, the same struggles, who care about me, and still, even in that situation, still not trust them and feel comfortable at times with being seen by them or be close. But I had realized it had nothing to do with these people. It was all me and my own fear based on the experiences I had endured. Something about that was actually reassuring because it seemed like something that could be healed. That's so profound. We had a session where the homework was to list our fears. It reminded me of the fears and loves that you have with guests. I had the longest list of fears in the group. I got pretty honest with them. I realized that fear was something I really let rule my life in so many areas. This was interesting to learn because before I went to therapy, I decided I was going to move from the small mid-southern city I was living in to uproot my life and move to New York City in six months or so. I informed my therapist and the group of this early on and they knew of my plan. Over and over, all these fears would come up that held me back from moving so many times before. I got told that I was brave for wanting to uproot my life and move to a city that was going to be so foreign to me, but I never felt brave. So, to get to the happy part, I guess, this past summer, um, the happy parts, I guess, this past summer uh, was the end of the group, and I had my moving truck booked for the very next day. I was waiting for the group uh, to be over before I moved. I still had all these fears lingering about leaving my therapist and the group, leaving my friends behind, fear of quitting my nice job to move across the country, fear that this new pl- what this new place had in store for me or how it might break my heart or at least my bank account. As we had our last session and I had all these mixed feelings swirling in me as I walked in to see so many, see the, many of these women who had helped me so much for probably the last time in person. Women who gave me confidence and reassured me every time I had doubts that I was making the right decision and moving. Our therapist had us all take turns listening to the entire group tell us what change each person saw in us. It took three hours. It was one of the most emotional things I've ever experienced. To the point that I am bawling right now recalling it. The feedback I had mostly received from the group was that they saw a tremendous transformation in me and saw me become a less fearful person and that their advice to me was to continue to allow people to love me and be close to me. I still have a hard time with that advice, but even in a city full of some of the most closed-off people I've ever encountered, I'm still making some progress on that front. To close, I got rid of most of my things before moving, especially wall art, but at the end of our session, my therapist had a gift for all of us. It appears to be the same thing for everyone. We all open up our gift, and it is a small framed quote 
that was to be hung on the wall. The quote was by George Adair, everything you want is on the other side of fear. We all started collectively bawling. I realized this was essentially my first, my first housewarming gift before leaving, and I couldn't help but think that it was miraculous that after the universe had handed me so much pain to have to endure that I couldn't believe that it would hand me such an amazing therapist and these amazing women in this amazing moment that was, was one of the happiest I had ever experienced in my life. I used to think I was so unlucky, and the universe showed me I was one of the luckiest and most blessed people on the planet in that moment. I am looking at that quote sitting on my bookshelf as I type this, crying my eyes out. On the other side of fear is a city I love, fellow artists I have met that have blown me away with their talent and their kindness, new friends, a new love, a new life, and new beginnings. How do you top that? I dare you to fucking top that. That just... That just leaves me speechless. That is just... I live for moments like that. And I know you do too. And I hope... If you are still listening, um, I hope you got some comfort from, from that. I know some of the stuff we read was pretty heavy, but um, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes the darkness is comforting to me, um, especially when there's that pinhole of light on the other side of it. And uh, it's, there, it's there for all of us if we're willing to get out of our comfort zone and ask for help. And um, I hope you know that you're not alone. You're not even remotely close to being alone. And um, there's a lot of people who will love you if you will just let them. There's a lot of people you need to get the fuck away from, too. <laughs> that seems to be life, is trying to, trying to figure out who the fuck do you move closer to and who the fuck do you move away from. And uh, maybe that should be the name of this podcast. Anyway, um, much love to all you guys. Thank you so much for your support, and thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.